So here's what's going on. We are in the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can flip open to Matthew 21 um, and, and chapter 22. I'm not going to do all those. Um, but if you don't have a Bible, you can look underneath you and just open that up. Uh, it'll be the first book in the New Testament. Go to chapter 21, and you can just take that book with you. It's, it's free. We want you to take it and have a Bible um, and, and use it as often as you can. Or if you have a Bible and you know people that need one, just take that and give it away to them. We want to give those out as, as free gifts. So um, here's what's going on, just as a reminder, because uh, I feel like maybe... We, uh, at least I, needed a reminder just to what's going on in this particular text. So I'm going to do a little bit of review on where we are and what's going on if you're new here so you'll know. Um, and then we'll, we'll jump in. If you have a Bible, like I said, you can go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to kind of do the end of 21, end of 22. And this is just a complete aside. I have no idea why it's like 5,000 degrees in here. I wish we could change it. It is ridiculously hot. So I know y'all are hot. Just think about how hot I am. So like, like these, these right here are like heaters. So anyway, I don't know what to do. We're figuring it out. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in uh, to Matthew 21. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that as we look at what could be uh, maybe a difficult text to understand um, and and quite large, I pray that um, you would make things easy for us to see, and not only um, that it would just be something that we comprehend, understand, and enters into our head, but it travels south 18 inches and, and drives down deep into our hearts and that it changes the way we feel, that changes the way we think and um, want to respond in our, with our emotions and even with our hands out as acts of worship to Jesus. And so let this not just be an intellectual under, uh, exercise, an understanding of more information, but Lord, instead the information comes and changes our hearts and I, I confess, God, that there's, n- there's nothing that I can do to cause that, and that's only something you can cause. And so would you come now and give me clarity of speech and clarity of presentation? Um, and um, on top of that, would the Spirit come now and convict my own heart and show me places that need to be uh, more in line with your will, more Christ-like, uh, more uh, conducive to the Spirit? But also, Lord, would you come and everyone in this room um, change our hearts to want to see Christ, know Christ, and be more um, deliberate about the way we, we live for him. Without that, Lord, we're just, we're just going through an exercise. And so we, we all confess our utter need for you to be here with us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, one thing, I know that last week was Easter, and I just want to remind us all, this is really good news, um, the grave is still empty and Jesus is still alive. So just because this isn't Easter doesn't mean that we're not celebrating an empty grave and a risen Savior. Every Sunday we celebrate a risen Savior. Yes, that's whoever said woo, I'm with you. So that's, that's really good news. Um, now, to enter into this particular narrative here, I, wanna, I know it felt like last week, you know, we went through that, that last week and Jesus died on the cross. And now we're, we're post-cross. But actually inside this narrative, inside this particular place in Matthew, we're still in the last week of Jesus. And so um, just want to give us all an understanding of where we are. Now, if you look down at the Bible, here's what's going on. Just as a, a bit of a reminder, some of this is going to be review. And la- last, last service, I did it really fast, so it, it shouldn't take too long. We're Look at 2118. You can see 2118, the curse of the fig tree in the morning, he returning to the city. That's where we started two weeks ago, and we had Easter, and now we're here. Um, and we're going to take 2118 and go all the way over to 2214. So that whole section right there is one big idea. And that's, that's what we started 
two weeks ago, and I just kind of presented half of it last time, and now we're going to do the other half this particular time. So what I want to do in these first couple moments is bring us all up to speed on what was that, that uh, half that we did last week, and then we can see the other half. Now, just so you can notice, the, the outline, it's, it's an easy little outline to see, and so I want us all to be able to see it. If you look at 2128, you can see it says the parable of the two sons. And then after that, <clears throat> at 2133, it says the parable of the tenants. And then you can see at 21, I'm sorry, chapter 22, verse 1, the parable of the wedding feast. And so there's three successive parables right there in a row. And this is the natural outline of what Jesus is wanting to tell these particular people that he's talking to, who are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders. Um, they were the people that were thought to be the people of God, but in essence, they weren't following God at all. They just thought they were. And so what he's going to do, he's having a conversation with them, and you can see it, how the conversation kind of rolls into the parables right there at verse 27, and it says, So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you these things by what authority I do these things. What do you think? And then he has these three little parables. And so for us, what I want us to see is, all right, what's the outline here, and what's, trying to go, what's, what's Jesus trying to do? What's Matthew the writer trying to help us see? This is what's going on. These three parables um, are kind of direct con- confrontational stories that Jesus tells these people who are thought to be the people of God but aren't the people of God. And each little parable he gives them, all three of them, kind of grow in successive force and successive judgment towards them regarding their lack of um, fruit bearing for God. They say, hey, I'm a fruit bearer for God. I'm all about Jesus. I, I, I'm all about God. I love God. And he's, he's like, no, you don't. You're just a huge fake. You're just a huge phony. You think you are, but you're not. So let, let me let you see how that begins, and then we're going we're gonna to do it. So if you see at 18, verse 18 in chapter 21, it says that in the morning he was returning to the city, became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside. So he goes over to this fig tree, and he, he curses the fig tree. Now, <clears throat> any tree huggers, you don't get upset. Jesus isn't like anti-trees. He's just, this is just an illustration. This tree really died. I mean, Jesus killed the tree, but he's not like, you know, anti-tree or tree huggers. So anyway... I don't know what I'm doing. So anyway, uh, he says this to the tree. And then the book of Mark says, as they're walking back the next day, the, the disciples look at the tree and they're like, Jesus, in one day this tree's dead. How did this tree die? How did it happen? But the better question is not how did it happen. I mean, Jesus did it. That's how. I mean, he fed 5,000 people. What do you, what's the big deal? But why? Why did he do it? That's the bigger question that needs to be answered. Well, what's going on here with fig trees? Um, whenever you see leaves... Anytime you ever see with fig trees, I know we're all just fig experts, so I'm going to, I'm just, this is all review for you, but just in case, um, whenever you see leaves, every time you see leaves, there should be figs. That's just the way fig trees work. Leaves always has figs. And he goes up to this fig tree, and he's hungry, and there's just foliage, leafage, just leaves everywhere. When you get close, no figs. From a long way away, when you're way back here, and you look, and you're like, oh, leaves everywhere, must have everything. Looks great on the outside. You get really close, what happens? Nothing. You just look at the tree and you're like, you're a big fat liar tree. You're a huge liar. I thought there was going to be all kinds of fruit here. And he takes this tree and he equates it to these religious leaders, these people of God. And you're like, foliage everywhere, Pharisees. Everybody thinks you have it together. You're supposedly the people of God, but there's no fruit at all. And so he curses the fig tree and, and basically casting judgment on these pe- pe- people who say they are the people of God, but there's no fruit. You're supposed to have fruit. And so he tells them that he's not pleased at all with their fruit bearing. So what we're going to do, and you can see the success of parables. So the way this is going to apply to us today is this. 
You have three parables where there's expectation of fruit. And he tells them, you don't have these fruits. So the way that we're going to look at it, those that are in Christ, this is, this is how you should look at these particular parables. That's what fruit should be in the people of God, but it's not. So we're going to take what should be, but it's not, and state it positively. And, and I'm going to say to you, Christians, you should have this particular fruit. This is an evidence of fruit if you are a Christian. That's parable number one. Here's the second evidence of fruit if you are a Christian. That's parable number two. Here's the third evidence of fruit that you should have in your life. That's parable number three. That's the outline. And that's what's going on. And so right after that, in verse 23, they're like, um, how is it that you're doing all these things? By what authority do you have all these things? And he's like, I'll tell you what, we'll make a little deal. Um, I think it's verse 25. Uh, maybe it's 24. Um, yes, 24. He goes, I'll, I'll, we'll make a deal. You answer my question, I'll answer yours. And he tells them um, right here, and, and read, it, read it 24. I also will ask you one question if you tell me the answer. I do these things by what authority do you ask what do I do these things? At 25, the baptism of John, he refers back to Matthew chapter 3, where John was inviting all the people who were the people of God, the Israelites, and saying, um, John the Baptist is saying, people of Israel, come and be baptized for a baptism of repentance. Come and do that. And all the, all the people of Israel coming out, except for the Pharisees who were present, but not being baptized. And so Jesus knows all these people that are here that are listening in on this conversation to the Pharisees, I'm going to ask them a question. And I'm going to say, um, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they're like, oh no, we're in trouble. Because if we say that it's from man... All these guys that are out here who were probably baptized that day are going to get mad at us. They're going to riot us. And, you know, being dead doesn't make for the end of a good day. And so we don't want to be dead. But if we say that baptism was from God, then they're going to say, well, then why weren't you baptized that day? So they, they, they see they're in a bit of a quandary. And so the answer is, oh, we don't know. Liars, just liars. And they say, they say, we don't know. And Jesus is like, okay, well, since you don't know, and you do, but you're not going to answer, I'm not going to tell you by which I have this authority. But I do have three little stories for you. And then he follows with these three stories. And these three stories directed straight at the Pharisees, the people who are the big fig trees, the big fakers. They're hypocrites. They, they're acting like they're the people of God, but they're not. He directs these three parables at them. And the first one is that parable of the two sons where you have um, one son, the father comes up and says, hey, I want you to do some work. And he's like, nope, not going to do it. Going to do what I want. You know, there's some, uh, there's some law and order reruns on TV I really want to catch up with or something. I don't know. And he, he didn't say that. That's not in the Bible. So he just goes off. And as he's, you know, doing his thing, he gets really convicted. It says um, in verse 29, I will not, he goes, I'm not going to do it. But afterward, it says he changed his mind. So this carries with it the idea of regret, but also a little bit of repentance. And so when he repents, he actually goes and does the father's will and work. The father says, I want you to go work in my vineyard. He's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And then he gets convicted. This is evidence that there's something going on in this guy's heart. The father goes up to the other son. He's like, hey, I want you to work in my, in my vineyard. He's like, sure I will. Yeah. But he doesn't do it. And he never, ever intended to do it. And so he says, basically, which one of those is the one <clears throat> that is doing the will of the Father, and they say the first one. And so what we saw from that last week is this. Um, if I can find my notes, they're all over the place. Uh, here it is right here. The first thing that we saw, the first evidence of fruit that we saw in that particular son was um, that he had a love for God, I mean, a love for his Father. He had a love for doing his will and work. At first he didn't, but when he didn't, we see that he, he had a life of repentance when those things weren't present. And that's the first evidence that needs to be in all of our lives. Whenever we are the people of God, people who say, yes, I love Christ, whenever 
Um, we know that we have been saved because of our faith in Christ. And now that that's saved and secure, we're going to go live a life of worship that shows this. Whenever he tells us, this is what I want you to do, then we need to have a love for God that compels us to go forward. We need to love obeying him and doing his will and work. And if at first blush or glance or whatever, we don't do it, we have, need to have a heart that says, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to repent of that of that disobedience, and I want to go do it. And that's what should be present in your life. If you're a believer, an evidence of the fruit that you're in Christ is that you would have a love of him and love for doing his will and repentance when it's not there and then a heart that wants to go do it. So uh, when we started out last week, what I wanted to show us all was uh, some verses in the Bible that help us see that this is the expectation of God that we are, as his followers, supposed to have fruit in our life. So I started off with some, some verses here. First one is Romans 7, 4. And all I'm doing here right now, this is, still, this is still a little review. I'm almost done. Is just helping you see that God expects, if you're in Christ, for there to be fruit born or good works that follow that you want to, for some examples, you want to act sin in your life, you want to put it to death. You don't want sin in your life anymore. People around you that don't know Jesus you feel compelled to do something about that. Not hoping that somebody else would come do it, but, but that you would tell them about Christ or, you know, those kinds of things. And so there's an expectation of fruit. It's not just, thank you for saving me, Jesus. I'm going to go out and jet ski and you just tell me whenever I'm coming home. It's not one of that kind of stuff. So Romans 7, 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. So if you are Christ's, you are not your own anymore. You actually belong to Jesus why do you belong to Jesus, to him who has been raised from the dead? In order that we may bear fruit for God. You are Christ's possession, and he, he owns you now. And the reason why is because he wants you to bear fruit for him. Not live a life of, you know, doing nothing. But here's another one. Let me skip down to Matthew thirteen twenty three. This is the parable of the good soils, the one that, that sprouts up. It says, as for one that was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it. And here it is. And does nothing? No. Indeed, he bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, another 60, another 30. That's up to God. But there's no question that we're still supposed to bear fruit. Another one, John 15, 16. Um, you didn't choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. So we can see there's clear evidences of Scripture. And there's multiple, multiple other verses that say, as Christians, you're supposed to bear fruit. Now, what I wanted to do is Instead of just trying to throw these verses out and say, here's the fruit-bearing verses. It's true. See? Now, come on, bear fruit. I thought I would just take a different approach this week because that was what I did two weeks ago. I want to try a second approach, which is just consider with me your life right now and just consider what your life would look like if it was actively bearing fruit. Now, that's all different for you. My wife... Um, we have four kids. She's a stay-at-home mom. She homeschools, and she's pregnant. So fruit-bearing life for her is, I saw one of these. That was awesome. Um, my, so fruit-bearing for her is not the same as the businessman that works in downtown Charlotte. Like fruit-bearing for her is whenever the children are constantly disobeying, being patient towards them, trying to help them see that their discipline is not just, we don't want to just correct their morality, but we want to um, discipline them with the gospel. We want them to understand who Jesus is in the gospel, not just be moral kids. And so Fruit-bearing for her is patience with them, teaching them the gospel, week in, week out, being, being fervent in doing that. That's, 
and, you know, not losing her mind by the time I get home, you know. And when I finally get home, it's just an adult. Let's have conversation, you know. So, and my fruit bearing is when I get home after doing all this work is, I, this is still my job. Like my, my job, number one job is husband, father. I just finished my second job. Now I'm going to my first job. Fruit bearing is I'm going to engage the family completely, not think that the rest of the night I can veg out because I worked hard. So that's, that's kind of, we all have different fruit bearing seasons. And of course, as we're going through life and your roommates and your classmates and your neighbors, all kinds of different seasons, but we're all in. Just consider with me, what would your life look like if you were actively bearing fruit? What would it look like? This is, this is an illustration I, I like. This happened to me this past week. I went to the trash dump. I, I live a mile from the trash dump. I just throw it in the truck and take it. As soon as I pulled up, no one was there. There was, I mean, this guy had one foot in the grave. Like, he was just like a skeleton walking out. He was like 85 years old, so old. Um, if you're 85, no, you're not. So anyway, um, anyway, so I go there, and automatically, like, this guy has his hat on. I don't remember, but it, it said Jesus, and I love Jesus, or I'm all, all about Jesus. It was one of those kinds of hats. He was just, I mean, this guy was amazing. As soon as he gets there, he's helping me. No one ever helps me empty my trash. This guy's emptying the trash, and he sees the Remedy Church thing. He's like, Remedy Church, where's that? And as soon as he asks where, it, where that is, the next question immediately is, oh, so you're a Christian? You, you know Jesus? I want to make sure you know Jesus. You're, you're saved? Like, an 85-year-old man is just taking any avenue possible to witness to me. And I left saying, I just got witnessed to by an 85-year-old man making sure I'm saved. I felt really awesome. I was like, that's awesome. I want to get witnessed to, 85 by witness, witnessed to by 85-year-old men more often and because it was just so cool. And then I started thinking, how come I'm not witnessed to very often? I live in, I live in the South, gospel-saturated South. I wonder why it is that I don't get witnessed to very often. And then I started thinking, and even more convicting, I wonder why it is that I'm not witnessing as often. as How come I'm not like that? And so then I started thinking, what would it be like if I was really bearing fruit? I mean, I'm, this man has taken whatever station in life he's in. His is, people come here, they're emptying their trash, they're going to hear about Jesus. That's, that's the way it is. Empty trash, hear about Jesus. He's, he's taking every opportunity he has to bear fruit. What would that look like in your life? in your interactions with your roommate, with your spouse, with your coworkers, Just picture the grandness of all the fruit bearing that you could have. Um, that's what God wants in our life. He wants us to actively be fruit bearers. So with all that kind of in mind, we're going to sink into this particular narrative where Jesus is interacting with these big fake phonies and saying, see, you're a fake phony because this, this fruit's lacking in your life. See, you're a fake phony. And I'm not trying to say, see, you're a fake phony. I'm just saying, if you are in Christ, don't you want these things? So the first one we saw is that we would love the will of God. We would love him and we would want to actively seek to do his will. Going into this next one, <clears throat> this is the parable of the tenants. Um, and so this parable is going to show the chief priests um, and the elders, their neglect of this covenanted duty they had, um, which is to obviously lead the people of God. And it's going to show us, too, our, our lack of, a lack of fruit-bearing more than likely in some ways. So let's, let's look at it, and then we'll go into the next one. It says, here another parable. Jesus wasn't done. As soon as he finished, I don't even know if he breathed, just kind of like me, just kept going. He says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. Now, vineyard is pretty curious because he uses the word vineyard in verse 28 as well. Back-to-back parables using the word vineyard. Vineyard is um, representative of Israel. And I know all of y'all are vineyard experts, um, so this is maybe a review just like fig trees, but um, vineyards aren't real easy. They take a good bit of work. You have to to do a lot of things. There's lots of things, lots of steps, and lots of care that has to be applied. And it's like the kingdom of God. 
building the kingdom of God, it's not easy. Like, it's difficult work. And just like the work that's required to to tend and grow this vineyard and maintain it, it's the same thing with growing the kingdom of God. It's not just like, God save them, amen, I'm just going to, you know, cough out the gospel one day and everybody, you know, 20 people. If we all realize, it's kind of difficult. You have to sow seed and sow seed and tell the gospel and pray that God would do things that only he can do. It takes a good bit of work. And so he's comparing it to a vineyard to help us all see this is difficult work. And not only that, um, you can see in this particular parable um, the, the, uh, the amount of care, the amount of expenses, the amount of pains that this particular master of the house takes to protect this vineyard. Where it says in 33, here another parable, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. So this is keeping out all the animals. If you've had a garden out in the country, you know the animals just get in there. You've got to put a fence around it or it's all done. You're going to be shooting rabbits the rest of your life. And it says, and he dug a wine press so that all the, once we get these grapes, we're going to keep, we're going to want the work here. We're going to dig the wine. We're not sending out. We want the work to stay here. And he goes, and he also built a tower. So he's got somebody up there with a sniper, like anybody that's coming in. I'm shooting any thieves that are coming in here. I'm picking them off. So he, he's taking all, probably not, but, but the point is that tower, they can look and see for thieves and know that they're coming in and, you know, take care of it. So he put all kinds of care and ex, he's taking expenses. The landowner obviously cares for this vineyard. He's put pain, pain and expenses in. He wants this vineyard to be kept and grown. He's done a lot for the kingdom. He's done quite a bit of expenses and pains for this kingdom to be built and he wants it and expects it to grow. And so here we see, um, and he went to another country. So he did all this. He went to another country. Remember, this is just a parable. So he, did it. he invited these servants in and <clears throat> to take care of this. And in 34, it says, when the, serv- the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants. So he puts this thing, he puts tenants in there, and says, take care of it. And then he goes and he sends these servants to this particular thing in order to get the fruit. You can see it right here. He sent the tenants to get his fruit. It's his get his fruit although they took care of it and then here we can see um as we're reading through this particular uh parable there's some allegorical elements if you're familiar with the old testament there's some there's some things that kind of just oh yeah that makes sense that that relates to the old testament i can see that so here these servants that are coming and and to get the fruit this is kind of like the prophets in the old testament that would come to the people of god and say hey you need to you need to change things aren't going well and how do they treat the prophets not not so kindly and so it says here and the tenants took his servants um, that were coming to get the fruit. They beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. This is how they treated the prophets. If you read in Acts 7.52, there's a man named Stephen that was a follower of Christ, and he was following Christ, and the people that did not like what he was saying, he was preaching this message, and right as he was being killed for pre- preaching this message, at the very end, he says in, in Acts 7, I think it's verse 52, to the, to the Pharisees, which prophets did you not persecute? You killed every one of them, basically, and then they stoned him. Um, so this is just, repre- that's kind of a, a, a prophecy of this prophecy, which happened in the Old Testament, is the tenants took these servants, and they beat him, and they killed him, and stoned another. And so the, the landowner's like, well, they didn't, they, didn't, uh, they didn't do what they're supposed to do with those servants. I'll send some more. 36, it says, and again, he sent more servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to him. Now we're progressing along the Old Testament. And here we moved into the New Testament where they send Jesus. And so Jesus is just kind of telling his own story in a, in a parabolic form. It's, it's, a, it's a parable. 36, I'm sorry, 37. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Certainly, I'm sending my son. I'm not sending servants. Charles Spurgeon, as he's reading this, he writes, 
Heaven, talking about Jesus, heaven adores him. Hell trembles at him. Surely they will reverence my son. But they don't. They kill him as well. In 38, it says, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Um, They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And so Jesus finishes this story, and he's looking at the Pharisees, and he's kind of telling a story about them. And he looks at them, and he asks this this pointed question in 40. This is where it gets pretty spooky, because he asks them this question in 41. They answer correctly. uh, He asks the question in 40. They answer correctly in verse 41, and the verse 41, the answer they give is actually the judgment that they have pronounced, the correct judgment that's actually coming on themselves. Look at verse 40. It says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He's going to be mad. (laughs) And they say, they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death. They're actually pronouncing what's going to happen to them. This is spooky. And let the vineyard, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. In other words, you, Israel, you didn't do what you're supposed to do. God's going to take you wretches and deal with you and then extend out this, this vineyard to the Gentiles and invite them in to be keepers of this so that they can build the kingdom of God the way that you're not. That's basically the answer. And he looks at them and basically says, yeah, that's right. Now, I want to stop here and let's, let's, let's get some understanding here. So here's the second thing that's going on. Um, we see that they're supposed to be fruit-bearing. And he looks at them, and he puts tenants into a vineyard. And he says, I've given you all kinds of gifts. I've given you all kinds of resources. I've put you in this area where I expect fruit. I'm coming to get fruit. There's an expectation of fruit. I've given you everything you need in order to create fruit. Is it happening? So it doesn't. But for us, when we're looking at it, what's, what's an evidence then for Christians that they're in Christ and that they're fruit-bearing? Here's the second thing. Um, parable 2, evidence of fruit is this. That we use the gifts and resources God has given us to build his kingdom. He gives them everything they need to do it. And he's given you resources. He's given you gifting. There's, there's things that he's given you. Whether you are um, a creative person and you, you're quite artistic. Or whether you are musical. Or whether you are a good spokesman. Or whether maybe you're affluent. Or you have a gift of counseling. Or I mean, whatever it is. There, there's all kinds of, I can just keep going and keep going. There's all kinds of gifts or resources or talents that Jesus, God himself, has given you. And he's given you these not to just use them selfishly upon yourself. He's given them so that you will take them in your vineyard, as, you, as it were, and build his kingdom. So I could look at verse 40, and I'm not going to do this, and, and take kind of the, the brow beat, you know, to get my Bible and beat you over the head kind of thing and say, so when he comes, what do you think he's going to say about the gifts you've been using? How you've just been flying them around. But I don't think that's the point because this is a parable. And, it's not, and I don't think you're going to say, well, he's going to take me, the miserable wretch, and put me to death. And I don't get to go to heaven. Because we know that going to heaven is not based on the works that we do, but based on what Christ has been done. That's the whole gospel. So um, I don't think that that's the way to approach this for us. Instead, I think is this. Um, when we're looking at verse 40, and this is a parable, the principle we can draw is, is um, God wants us to have been productive with the gifts, resources, talents, whatever it is that he gives us. So the question for us then is this. You're a, for those that are Christians, you're a Christian. You're a tenant. Um, how are you using these resources? I think that's a better question for you. How are you using them? Are they all for yourself? 
or are they for God? Or are you just squandering them, not using them at all? Um, I think that when we get to the end of our life, we don't want to look back and say, oh, I've just squandered all of God's resources and talents and gifts on meaningless things. He wants you to look back. He wants us all to look back and when we get there and say, God, you gave me these resources. There was an expectation of fruit. And what I wanted and what I did and when I look back at my life, I saw that I did not squander the things you gave me, but instead I used them all for your glory. Certainly there are times whenever we're going to go through life where we have seasons where we're not. But the overall kind of trajectory is an upward use of all the resources you gave me. I did the best that I could. Some 100, some 60, some 30, which is up to God. But we, but we use them. The second evidence of fruit in our lives is that whatever he gives you, you may not be the most gifted person. I know I'm not. But God wants us to use the fruit, the talents, the resources that he's given us to build his kingdom. So, entered back into here where he tells them this. Um, they say, yeah, this, they should die. And he goes, haven't you read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I'm the stone, you've rejected me, now I've become the cornerstone. He, he quotes uh, Psalm 18, verses 20, 118, verses 22 and 23, and he goes, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This, y'all don't even, he's kind of telling them, y'all don't understand what's going on. I am that stone. And he says, therefore, I tell you, <clears throat> therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So this is starting to get pretty serious with them. Like, you think that you're the managers of the people of God? This is the point of this parable. You're not. So it's going to be taken away. And it's going to be given to people that are actually going to do the work that I called them to do. And then verse 44, it's kind of a repeat of 41. 41 is the Pharisee saying, this is what should happen, destruction. Verse 44 is Jesus saying, this is what's going to happen, destruction. But when Jesus says it, he, he hints back over into Daniel 2. Um, in Daniel 2, King Nebi, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has, uh, he has a dream where he's like, there's, I have a dream where basically, I, want to make, I wrote it down so I can be as precise as possible. Um, King Nebi has this dream where he says, I have a dream of a statue where four successive kingdoms are kind of represented on this. But then a stone that hasn't been carved out by human hands comes down and strikes the statue and just grinds this st- statue down into pieces. This, this statue was representative of kingdoms, but this, this one stone the cornerstone, Jesus, comes and just destroys it. And then the stone builds itself up into this huge mountain and it fills the whole earth. And that stone is Jesus. Like that's, that's what's going on in Daniel 2. And so having known all of kind of Daniel 2, we come into this and then it says this. Um, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It will crush him. And so there's a like, Wow. We understand that this really is about us. Um, And it says that right here in 45. This is hilarious. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Like, hey, uh, Larry, I think he's talking about us. This doesn't sound so good. Um, By the way, this is just kind of a side note, but this whole parable is basically just a repetition of Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Like Jesus takes Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, which the Pharisees were quite um, quoted in. They knew the, the Old Testament scriptures. And he takes that parable and he takes it from Isaiah 5 and just turns it on them and tells them the judgment's coming on them. So that all that's kind of coming on, on them and they're like, he might be talking about us. 
what should we do? Well, we can't do anything. And so it says in 46, why? Although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held Jesus to be a prophet. And so Jesus, that all happens, um, and he's not done. He, he, wants to, he wants to have one more successive parable to show their lack of fruit bearing. But for us, hopefully when we see it, we say, I should have that fruit in my life. And Jesus launches into this third one, um, which is successively going to grow in its judgment. L- let me show you that really fast. Um, the first kind of judgment, if you look back at 21, verse 31, he's looking at them, and the first thing he tells them is, you're not fruit-bearing, you big fake foliage trees, and you know what's going to happen? He says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to go to the kingdom of God before you. Just consider who he's telling that to. The Pharisees. You know, they thought, if I even get near a, a, a prostitute or tax collector, if I touch them, then I'm automatically unclean. And it's really funny, Matthew, the tax collector, is like, <laughs> tax collectors and prostitutes are going to heaven before you. You know, so, and you can see that that's, they're, they're reading this and they're like, those people are the scum of the earth and they're getting in front of me? That's kind of judgment number one. And you can see it here in judgment number two that happens right there. The stone's going to fall on you. You're going to be broken into pieces. And anybody that falls on, it's going to crush them. And then the third one gets even worse. You can see it. I'm going to go ahead and point it out to you. Um, if you look in 22 verse 13, it says that they bind them hand and foot, cast them out into outer darkness. And in that place, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a direct quote saying, you're going to go to hell. That's, that's what he's alluding to. And so scumbag people that you think are going to heaven before you, you're going to be crushed by the cornerstone who is me, and you're going to be sent out into hell. So we can see the success of judgments that are coming through these three parables. I mean, quite, and when we get to 23, it's just all out. So let's go to 22 here, one, and let's kind of walk through this parable. And I want you to see the evidence of fruit that's lacking, and for us, must be present for those who are people of God. It says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call all those who were invited to the wedding feast. So son's having a, having a wedding. I want everybody to come, invite them all. But they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, went off, to his farm and other to his business. So we got, we got, we got stuff going on, Jesus. I mean, there's, there's some important stuff going on over at the farm. There's a, you know, a hoedown or something. We got to do that, um, which is just ridiculous. The king is inviting you to a party and you're wanting to play in the farm. So um, it says, while the, re- while the rest, they seized these servants. They treated these servants that are trying to invite them shamefully and they killed them. Well, the king hears about this. The king was angry and he sent troops to them. He destroyed those murderers and he burned their city. Kind of harsh, kind of a harsh king, right? We'll talk about that in a second. Um, And then he said to his servants, um, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited, don't miss this, were not worthy. That's that's the crux of what we're going to see here when it comes to the third bit of fruit bearing. And it says, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. I invited them. They don't want to come. They want to play hoedown. They're getting burned and killed. Now just go out to the main road and invite everybody you can. Invite them all. And look at this in verse 10. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in, comes in there to take a look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Um, Then the king, just speechless before the king. 
kind of a little illusion there. Anyway, uh, verse 13, Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him out into utter darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he closes with 14, and this is the whole point of the parable. Point of parables are always at the end of parables. It says, For many are called, but few are chosen. That's the point? I don't get it. We're gonna, I'm going to explain it. So there it is. Jesus finishes it off with this and just destroys them with this last parable. So let's, let's take it piece by piece and let me help you see what the point is and how the last little sentence is for us. Now, or explains it to us. Just a reminder, I know I've said this quite often, but parables are just that. They're parables. So when you read a parable and you see that it has relation to things that are kind of told about in the Old Testament, you don't take every detail of that parable and try to equate it. Just like we saw in the parable of the tenants, we don't equate that every detail to how it worked out in the Bible. Same thing with this. There's no doubt, as we see here, about a, uh, when it says there was um, a wedding feast, when we see this wedding feast being mentioned in 22.2, that certainly alludes to the great messianic banquet in Revelation. So when we look at, we read this parable, we're like, okay, that's the messianic banquet. That's what, this, that's, that's what it's talking about. So every detail of this parable must perfectly match all the details in Revelation. No, this is a parable. It's not going to match. Just, just a couple examples of how it's not going to match. Um, this is, because it's a parable, there's these differences where at the messianic banquet, whenever we go there, like this, this wedding feast, you're like, okay, the son's getting married. Who, who's the son? When we're at the messianic banquet, we're not like, I wonder who the Messiah is. I wonder who. Like everybody there is going to be like, Jesus is the Messiah. We all know that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not some kind of like random thing that we're just kind of invited in. And we also see here, there's a little bit of elements in this particular parable. We're like, hey, you're invited. Eh, I got some better things to do. There's not going to be anybody refusing invitation to the messianic banquet in Revelation, nor would we want to refuse the invitation to the messianic banquet. So there's, there's some things here, as we can see, that aren't perfectly uh, matching. But I, I just want us to remember, as we're going through the parable, parables aren't detail-oriented. You don't need to read into them the points at the end. So let's kind of go through this, and we can see some of the things I want you to see. The king of heaven is like this. So we know Jesus is still talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's wanting them to realize you're supposed to be building the kingdom of heaven, but you're not building the kingdom of heaven. You have no fruit whatsoever, just like when I cursed the fig tree. And he says these wedding guests were invited, and he sent his servants to call out to the wedding guests, and they wouldn't come. Verse 4, and again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared everything. My oxen and my calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Look at this right here. Come to the wedding feast. Now, the way this is written, we're supposed to take, come to the wedding feast like this. It is both, it is both an honor and a command. Come to the wedding feast. This is a command that God, the King Jesus is saying, come. Be reconciled, be saved, be the kind of person that wants to go to the final um, messianic banquet, be part of the kingdom of God, come to it. And not only that, the king is inviting you. The king has invited, this is an honor. And they're just kind of brushing this off like it's no big deal. Yeah, that's all right. I got a thing over here at the farm. Um, So this come to the wedding feast is both an honor and a, uh, a command Come to the wedding feast, but they paid no attention. They went off to his farm. They went over to his business. While the rest seized these servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And it says the king was angry. So he sent troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Now we read that. We're like, now if this is all kind of 
detail, and I'm looking at it, and like, if that's God, God just, you get kind of angry. Like, that's God being angry. Let's take a step back and think about it this way. Um, look one parable over to the left at 21, and look at verse 38. But when the tenants saw the Son, this is what they did to the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. They, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So when we read it in light of this, the reaction is not necessarily so strong when we realize Jesus is trying to be forceful with these people saying, you're, you're going to kill me in less than five days. This is what's going to happen when the Father finally finishes with you in final judgment. So he's just, that's what's going on here in that particular verse that feels so strong. Then... Um, verse 8, this is where it gets really important. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is not ready. Uh, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited, here it is, were not worthy. They were not worthy. In other words, the king, the son of God, has given out an invitation to come and be a part of heaven, the family of God. And you think it's just pointless. You find it as just like another invitation that you're invited to, to go do something, like go out to Chick-fil-A. Like it, you, you treat it as just whatever. And he's saying, you're not understanding. This is the king. You're not worthy of it. You don't have a proper adoration of the Son of God for who he is and what he's done in your life. That's the fruit that you are lacking. So that's the third thing. That's the third thing that they don't have, and that's the third thing that we should have. The third evidence of fruit is that we have a proper adoration of the Son of God and the grace that he's shown us. And this happens in our life. We all can identify with this. We, if you're a believer in Christ, you know that there's a moment where you got saved and you were like, I'm telling everybody in the world about Jesus. Everybody. I don't care. I'm like chat rooms. I mean, whatever. It doesn't matter. Every, I'm not even going to sleep the rest of my life. I'm doing, all I'm doing is telling people. And then you kind of get into your rhythm of life and you forget, um, oh yeah, you know, now that I'm a Christian, I'm not supposed to be crazy like that, um, but you are, but you think you're not. And so you kind of go through this little rhythm of life. Um, I should say, but we are. So we're going through this rhythm of life and we find a little rhythm where we don't tell people about Jesus as much as we should. We get a little bit more comfortable with sin than we should. We, we don't bear fruit like we know that we're supposed to. And what's happened is we have had, we've bought into the lie that we're not supposed to have a proper adoration of the Son of God for the amazing grace that you've shown us. So what we need to do is return back to remembering, I was a tax collector. I was a prostitute. And he saved me. The fact that he saved me is supposed to make me be so astounded, so amazed. This grace that he's given me is supposed to cause my heart to be so amazed at this that I have this proper adoration of who he is. Therefore, now I want to go bear fruit. I want to live a life that bears fruit. I know that there's some roller coasters, but the whole of my life is a growing, not faltering, but growing adoration of the Son of God for the grace that he's shown me. That's evidence of fruit. And he's looking at him and saying, you have, you have none of that. So let's just ask it for ourselves. Is there a growing, proper adoration for the Son of God in your life? Or are you just floundering on the side, cruising through life, doing your thing, finishing college first, having your children first, getting them out of the house first, finally getting your job first, finally saving some money. Like, we can make excuses to the day's end, but we, we, 
this is not the point. The point is, once I'm saved, I cannot get over the fact that I'm saved. I have a proper adoration, and I want to go bear fruit for him. They were not worthy. Now, verse 9 is not the point of the parable, but I can't help but take a little side note on verse 9 because it's so stinking awesome. Look what it says. Um, Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Now, I'm pretty sure not one person in this room is Jewish. I think we're all Gentiles. So that means somebody has taken verse 9 to heart and said, not just Israel is now part part of the people of God, but Gentiles are now being invited in. Go out and tell all the Gentiles, Israel has rejected. Go out to the main roads and invite people like us into. And so I think that as we read verse 9, I I want you to just kind of draw that verse 9 out and say to you, listen, you simply cannot stop inviting people to Jesus. You, You just can't stop. There's nobody out of the realm of salvation that Jesus can't save. That's, that's the point here. Go out and invite as many people to the wedding feast as you find. Just stop that and just, you can make that your life verse. Tattoo it on your leg if you forget it. My job, don't do that, is to invite, it, maybe you will, but don't, your job is to invite as many people as you can to the wedding feast, i.e. Jesus. Go out and invite, and I'm not saying invite to church, okay? I'm saying invite to Jesus, you, you need to know Christ. I don't care where you go to church. You need to know Christ. Well, I kind of care, but you need to know Jesus. All right? If they preach the gospel, go there. Um, that's the point that we need to look at verse 9 and say, that's what Jesus wants from me. He wants me to invite as many people to trust Jesus as I can. Now, let's go down to verse 10 because there's a principle I want you to draw out of that as well. Uh, it says, and those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found. Don't miss this awesome act of obedience. Okay, we'll do that. That's what he wants. But look what they brought in. They gathered all they can found, both bad and good. I think it's interesting that he says both bad and good. And what I think that we can draw out of this is, is this. Um, both bad and good. Now, we know that when we say somebody's good, you know, no one's good, really. We, all, we know that we're all sinners. Whether you're in Christ or not in Christ, I think we can all agree that every single one of us has committed a sin. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what it says in Romans. We all know that we're sinners. And so there is no good or bad. But as we're looking at people, some people are trying to have a, uh, a life where they're either trying to earn the favor of God or they've gone off the rails and they don't care. But they, they have kind of our human perspective categories of good or bad. And meaning this, there's some people that go the, the religious route, the law-keeping route, they think, um, as long as I do all the things that are good and I, I keep trying to be a good person, God's going to look at those things. And as long as my good outweighs my bad, he's going to look at that and he's going to say, yes, you're a good person. Yes, you can come in. There's people that go that route. And there's other people that go the rebellious route, whether they're religious or rebellious, whether they're legalistic or licentious. And that just means sinners, but I had to have another L. Um, th- that means they've, they've chosen to say, my life is my own. I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't want to care about doing as good things. I'm just going to be a sinner. Like, I, I want to do as many things as I can that are all about me. And so if you look back at your life and you're like, yeah, that's the route I've gone. He's saying here, it doesn't matter whether you are religious, whether you're the rule keeper. If you are, you need to repent of trying to keep rules to be saved because that doesn't save you. Instead, you need to say, God, I repent from thinking that I can do the good things that get me saved. 
I can't. It's only John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Only the way I can get to heaven is through you. So I repent of the things that I'm trying to do and cast myself on what has been done by Jesus. He's the only way. And then same thing over here. You say, Jesus, I realize that I'm just a wretched sinner. I've lived a life of sin, and I I want to be forgiven. I think I'm too dirty. I think I'm unforgivable. He's saying, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through, through me. Good or bad, there is no too good or too bad that everybody comes together to this middle where Christ is, the only road to salvation. Whether you're good or bad, everybody's called in. Everybody's invited in to repent of being good, repent of their sin, and casting themselves wholly on Christ and Christ alone for salvation. That's, that's beautiful. So it doesn't matter how good you think you are or how bad you have been. Everybody finds equal footing at the cross and is forgiven freely and equally of religion or of um, rebellion at the cross. And he says, both good and bad, bring them all. Now, verse 11 and following gets a little crazy. And when you read it, you're like, but I'm thrown off by this. What does this mean? Let Let me explain it to you. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the religious. He's talking to the people that think that, um, you know, they have everything together. And they think that they should be in the kingdom of heaven. They think they've got all these things together. And they have their big, huge, leafy tree. Look at me. I've got everything. Everything's fine when they have no fruit bearing. And so, and all that, this parable is looking at them and it's saying, there's going to be a day where you're, you think that you're invited into the wedding. You're going to say, Look at my big, huge, leafy tree. I'm good. But you're not supposed to have the big, huge, leafy tree. You're supposed to have the wedding garment. The wedding garment's what saves, not this fake thing. All your good works, that's not what saves. The righteousness of Christ and his work on the cross clothed on you. That's the wedding garment that saves. That's what gets you in. And so we see here in verse 11, that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to the Pharisees. It doesn't matter what you do to get saved. It matters what's been done by Jesus. And so he says, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw a man who was standing there with no wedding garment. He thinks that the good work saved. And he said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? Now, this isn't going to be in heaven. We know this. This is just a parable. And he says, he was speechless. And as we would be before Jesus, if we think that good works are going to save us, his cross and cross alone is all that's going to save. And then it says, then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him out into utter darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, what does that last sentence mean? This is what it means. D.A. Carson says it, and I couldn't say it any better. He says, many are invited, but some refuse to come. They go out into the streets, come to the king. Nope, got better things to do with my life. Don't want Jesus. That's what it means in part. And here's the other side. And others who come refuse to submit, submit to the norms of the kingdom and are therefore rejected. They come, yeah, Jesus, that's fine with me. If that's how I got to get saved, that's what I'm going to do. But they neglect this, the three parables. And there's an expectation of fruit. This expectation of fruit doesn't save you. But now that you are saved, you are now bought by Jesus and you are supposed to go out and live a life of fruit bearing. So whenever you've been invited in, it says they, they come, but they refuse to submit to the norms of the kingdom, which is fruit bearing. They think, yeah, saved, good. I can do whatever I want now. Jesus, that's what I want. Now, that's not saved. That's exactly what he's saying. You're not saved. There's an expectation of fruit bearing. And that's not saving you. That's showing 
that your heart is so on fire for being saved that it can't help but do anything but explode forward on an upward trajectory forever of doing good works, bearing fruit for God. And doing that gives evidence, not saved, doesn't earn, but gives evidence that 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 faith that you put in Christ was real. We all want to know. We all want to know that we're in Christ. And the best way to do over and over in the Bible is to tell us, Fruit bearing. It's based on faith, but fruit bearing. And so let's let's take a pause here. Let's take a little TO and ask some questions. That's a timeout. Um, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, we're going to talk to you that that would say, I'm not, and I'm, I'm. This is all interesting to me, and God's doing something in my heart right now that's making me think. This man, Jesus, is willing to die for my sin. I'm quite interested in hearing about that. And I, I want to talk to you in a second. But for those of you that are, are believers, and you've heard these evidences of faith that should be present, that you should have a love of God and repentance when you're not wanting to do His will and work, that you're supposed to have a proper adoration for the grace that's been shown to you. You're also supposed to, you're also supposed to use the gifts, the talents, and the resources in order to expand the kingdom. Let's just stop, stop and talk one second. And this is good for you. No matter what stage of life you're in, are you, right now, examine your life, are you bearing fruit for God? I'm not trying to say that to say, and you're not a Christian. I'm just saying, if, if you're in Christ, okay. What does your life look like? Are you even at age 85 going to take your trash dump job, whatever it is, and use that as an opportunity when people pull up to say, want to make sure you know who Jesus is. I mean, just countries he could be. I want to make sure you know who Jesus is. Just make, we need to know that everybody is trusting Jesus. I was like, yes! So, my point is, are, are you doing this? Whatever, li- whatever stage of life are you in, examine yourself. This is good. This doesn't say that I'm trying to make you question your salvation. I'm simply just saying, does my life reflect, yes or no, fruit bearing? And if it doesn't, what needs to change? Why doesn't it? These are good questions for Christians to ask. Really good questions. Because if it doesn't, the great news of the gospel is that Christ has already, already forgiven all of the sin, all of the neglect of his glory, and you are 100%, you are standing 100% righteous right now before Jesus, and he's sending you out with more love than you can conceive over you, saying, go bear fruit, child. Go bear fruit right now. Doesn't matter to me whether you're 15, 65, or 135. Go bear fruit. So we're going to have some time here, Christian, for over these next few songs for you to think and pray and ask God, what am I doing? What am I not doing? Help me make the changes by the power of the Spirit that lives a life of fruit bearing. For those of you that aren't Christians, I just want to talk to you for one second, and then we're going to go into a time of worship. If all this is kind of new information to you and you're just, this is really making me think, bud. I, I've never heard this message before. Here's what I want to tell you. This morning, you can be saved. This morning, you can be completely forgiven. If you know that you're a sinner, you can say, yes, I'm a sinner. I repent of my sin. Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me for my, of my sin. Transform me and, and make me a believer now that, knows they're going to heaven. That can happen right now this morning. 
by putting your faith in Christ and asking him to forgive you of your sin. And then, because you've been saved, you can live a life now that is fruit-bearing. And that fruit-bearing is not earning, but it's giving evidence that what has happened this morning, the faith that you put in Jesus is real and that you have secured eternity. Or I should say it this way. God has secured eternity for you forever. That can happen right now, this morning. And I want to invite you, listen, don't put that decision off. Make that decision right now, this morning. I'm going to be standing right here. Talk to me afterwards. I would love to be able to talk to you. The person you came with, talk to them during the song. Make them buy you lunch and, and tell you about Jesus. Like, we want that to happen. I want, to, I want to push you to make that decision today rather than say, I can put that off. There's no reason to do that. We've got some breathing room here with music. We're going to have a few songs. And if you need prayer or if you're not a believer and you want to know Christ, then you can come talk to me. You can talk to the person. Stand and sing when you're ready. And we're going to have a time of response here. I'm going to pray and just trust the Spirit now to lead you as he, as he would. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. I pray that you would be present now in this room as we respond. For Christians, that they would really do the hard work of reflection and really ask the hard questions about whether the life are fruit-bearing. And then remember the gospel that they are forgiven and walk forward, Lord, with lives that bear fruit after this. And for those that don't know Christ this morning, that are in this room, I pray that this morning they would trust Christ. They would put their faith in what he's done on the cross Believe in the resurrection that secures life eternal for them. Repent of their sin and be saved eternally. Would you grant that this morning right now, Lord? Be with us now as we respond through song. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen.